We are back for another Codex Cantina episode, which is just two guys talking literature, trying to make sense of it. Now, we spend a lot of time pushing ourselves, trying to understand this literature, organizing it, and then bringing it to a conversational approach for how we deliver it. And we've absolutely put more money in it than we've gotten out of it. So if you guys are considering supporting this channel, we'd appreciate you checking out our Patreon link at patreon.com slash the Codex Cantina, as well as Ko-Fi of ko-fi.com slash the Codex Cantina. It all helps us in running the show, along with commercials, guys. So thank you so much. We're going to do a quick commercial break, and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode. The jury said guilty, and the judge said life, but he didn't hear them. And we are back with Mink and the Gang for The Mansion by William Faulkner today. Didn't it feel like this book should have been all Mink and just be like, Flem who? (laughs) (laughs) He began working on this December 13th, 1956, maybe. There's there's kind of like a kludgy part when it comes to his, his journal entries. But he says, I am now working on the third volume which will finish it, right? So so he knew this was going to be the final of his Snopes trilogy. And when I think we talk about the Snopes trilogy, it's kind of, it's it's usually when you think about a trilogy, it's just like part one, part two, part three, right? Like, like you have A New Hope, you've got Empire Strikes Back where nobody <laughs> wins, and then you've got the, the Jedi where you have, you know, like the purging and the catharsis, right? Yeah, the good guy wins. Faulkner is never the same. He loves to revisit tales. And there's all these discrepancies about, well, how how old was the character being off by even a whole decade between books to very minor things about how long, you know, Flem owned a hat. Stuff like, who really cares, guys? But Faulkner knew when he published this that he was deliberately messing up his stories from the from the past, the other two of the Snopes trilogy. And, and when asked to fix it, he just said, I like to think of the world I created as being a kind of keystone in the universe. My last book will be the Doomsday Book, the Golden Book of Yakna Batafa County. But then refuses to go back to fix his, his, his book. He just said, go back and fix the old books. Like, this is going to be it. This is going to be my cornerstone of my career. I love how it perspective doesn't matter. In, in all the books that we've read, perspective is like, well, this is the way I see it. And that's the way the book's going to be told at this point of view. So when you have, you know, Mink, you get Mink's point of view and literally his interpretation. And when you get Flem, you get Flem's. And if they lie and the books quote are wrong, then that's okay because it's imitating real life. And I love how Faulkner did that. And he wasn't going to apologize for writing realism. And I think that's what makes these books so amazing. And you can get so engrossed in them because they they feel real. It's like they, they are the soap operas of soap operas before soap operas were a thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, to level with me here because a lot of people and critics too love the Hamlet. Like people love the Hamlet, the town, uh, and then the mansion. Okay, decent follow up, but but I think the what a lot of people would call repetition hurts their experience. But let's let's admit this: when we look at like if you were Faulkner going through this experience and you had this story, but you weren't a hundred percent sure, you're trying to work it out, right? And isn't that true of any? author they're trying to work out their story as they're writing this book and the hamlet turns out great it's hilarious but it's small people it's small problems small debts 
and even a small story, just being confided to this Frenchman's Bend. Sure. And then we go to the town, right, which picks Grandiose. up where it, it ended, right? But in usual Faulkner fashion, we're going into a bigger town, and we have mm-hmm. lots of backstory, but we, mm-hmm. we get the rise to power with Flem, right? And then cut. Cut at at the mansion scene at the end, which is a beautiful ending and good ending to a movie. I think almost this is the Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> but but what's weird is it it encapsulates a lot of the Hamlet too. A lot of the Hamlet is brought in and recontextualized. Now, when we look at the mansion, it's not like a third part. It literally is taking all of the Hamlet and all of the town. And And again, recontextualizing it, it, putting it at a different point of view, which I think is exhausting for some people. But but it's it's very clear that Faulkner saw a different truth and and re-examined why people are the way that they are. And I think that's what the mansion does, is is it's an it's an attempt at Faulkner to explain why these people are the way that they are, because he didn't get it right in the first two novels. That makes sense. I, I can accept that. I guess it just it doesn't make me enjoy this book anymore. I, I liked it. And thinking about that gives a better meaning of what he was trying to attempt. But for me, I I, I felt like if Flem had died in the town and instead of this one, I felt like more of the story could have been about his alleged daughter the story could have been more about Mink and we could have had not closure. I mean, cause we don't get that with the Snopes, you know, family, but the, 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 that Flem's legacy could have lived on and more stories could have been told. I guess I was just, I wanted more. Like I enjoy these characters. I enjoy this universe, the, the Snopes universe. I, I wanted more shenanigans. And I thought that the mansion was going to give me more Hamlet. And, and I think that, Maybe if Flem had died early in the book, or again in the previous book, we could have gotten that. And so I felt like it was, it was, I think you used the word stale. It just felt a little stale. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't disagree with anything that you've said. I, I, I had similar feelings, but I'm trying to not justify why you should like it, right? Because, because how you're going to feel is how you're going to feel. It's the idea of, you know, Faulkner put the story aside for what, 17 years? You know, wrote the first one in 1940, next one in what, 57? This one in 59, so so 20 year almost. 20 journey. years. Yeah. And, and here's the thing is he starts looking at these characters from different points of view. And you can't really do that with, with, with being in a box in a character. Because when an author is exploring a character's mind, he's living in their head. right? He's becoming them almost. And yeah. Faulkner needed to understand this whole town. He needed to create the people's of Yaknapatafa County to better understand that when he's writing this new American capitalism coming in about looking out for oneself, doing what it takes to get ahead because you can rise in social class. Now, what did that do to all the other people? What did that do to all the other farmers and the people who were run over in the path? I think it took Faulkner a long time to understand that himself. Do you think he ever truly did? Cause I feel like he's walking down the streets in his mind, and he's seeing the different Snopes characters, and he's seeing the water tower, and he's seeing the mansion, and he's he's seeing the stores and the streets and the you know 
the, the the cars that are coming in or he's imagining well what happens when i bring a car into this one trick pony town do you think he really had it that far mapped out or that was kind of maybe like you said the excuse before is i'm just kind of winging this and i'm gonna make mistakes but these characters are living beings in my head and so i'm gonna do the best that i can with what i know of them up to this point, because I don't think he had them fully fleshed out. He only knows up them up to this certain point. No, no, he absolutely didn't. He's, you know, there's those there's those scientists that spend all their time. It, it depends on the type too, but they spend all their time on the formulas, on the theoretical, working it out in their mind. Because maybe maybe it demands it. Maybe maybe you need to have that for whatever you're testing. And then there's those scientists that are like like okay, well, I can add this, and it's such a chaotic system, I can only change one thing at a time, which is good science, too. Like, Don't get me wrong. But but the <laughs> idea of those that are more into trying than theorizing everything. Faulkner, I think, is a trier. He needs to introduce this one character to bounce it off the town, to bounce it off his morality system and to question things rather than work out this thousand character epic piece in advance before writing the first word. Like, like he's testing it as he goes. I feel like that makes sense. I could see that of going from the Hamlet lays the groundwork. Then you get into the town and you have a few new characters and things open up and broaden. And then I feel like he saw the success of the Hamlet and said, I I think I'm going to rein it back in a little bit. Uh, and start addressing a few issues that I saw and worked out. So I, I guess that makes sense. I, I can see that. I like that. So let's talk about Mink, right? He, he's probably the most energy that you get in this. In terms of the narrative energy, he brings the most to the table, I think, in the story. Agreed. And yeah. in, in the previous books, he's, to me, rather 2D, right? He, he's just there. He's plot. He's interesting. <laughs> he's interesting, but I, I don't see through him. And it's in this story that we really get an idea for Mink in terms of the real struggle of of planting the fences and working off the cow and how it wasn't it wasn't about the money. It was it was all about fairness, how he was born poor and some people are born rich and that ain't fair. And here comes Houston, who's a little bit more well to do and taking advantage of him just to rub his nose in it with that pound fee. It ain't the hmm. fee. It's the fact that he had so much more to give the the noblesse oblige like like he should be giving more because he has more and he doesn't and that's not fair and they talk about how it's fairness that really just drives mink into this psychotic rage which you know hey let's do a slow clap for a man that has a 35 year <laughs> grudge but doesn't even have an idea of how phlegm could have actually helped him <laughs> <laughs> i i love mink's story of I feel like Faulkner is creating the idea of the American dream before maybe it was actually realized of the quote 1950s American dream of the the you know post World War II soldiers coming back and getting what they thought was going to be you know the American life. I feel like it's embodied in Mink that he's going to pull himself up by the bootstraps, which we know is literally impossible, but he's going to do it because he's going to combat the fairness, right? And Mink is somebody that I think is is that American identity of driving forward at no matter what the cost. Do you think by making him more visible that 
if he just drove ahead at all forward with no characterization really kind of like phlegm in a sense like phlegm's very backgroundish particularly through some of these like the town and even like to an extent like the hamlet the way he stood behind the fence and watched the auction even though you knew he was pulling the strings behind it you 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 paint him as a, a villain but maybe a hero sometimes but you don't there's there's a lack of characterization there and if that was just mink like in the earlier books you kind of don't like the character that much by by telling his story you know, there's that famous quote that you can't hate a person close up. Do we, is that the trick? Are, are we empathizing with someone who's a murderer? His lawyer calls him a snake. Like his family's almost invisible to him. Like they don't even exist. He's obsessed with, with this idea of killing his own family member. Do we sympathize with the devil? Do we sympathize with like that Machiavellian that'll do anything to get his way? Uh, because you can't hate someone close up? You hit the nail on the head. The idea that somebody is up in your face, it's really hard to com be combative when you're talking to somebody over the phone. It's really, or keyboard warrior, it's really mm -hmm. easy to be tough, right? But mm -hmm. now that Mink is up in our grill and you see where he's coming from, it starts to give you a little bit of sympathy and empathy. But... I think you, you you mentioned it. I think it, he's more like almost an anti-hero, right? You know he's a bad person, but you want him to kind of succeed because he's been wronged. So you and all of our friends out there that do the Faulkner and August experience with us, thank you and apologies for being late to this. But for all of us that read the book Sanctuary by William Faulkner last year, we saw Miss Reba, right? We also saw Clarence Snopes we see a much more empathetic look now at Mink, right? Like we're, we're, we're giving him a 3D. We're giving him a reason because can you really be, be a villain if you're a product of someone doing wrong to you or you're, un, you know, being treated unjustly? And Miss Reba almost gets a little bit more of a friendly look now as opposed to in Sanctuary. But Clarence Snopes still is the unscrupulous man, the man that... <laughs> I mean, like he was literally in the KKK, right? Like this is a guy that, that Faulkner decides not to have uh, the sheets pulled back on. Why pull the sheets back on Mink and Reba, but not on Snopes, the uh, Clarence Snopes? I think it's a generational thing. I think that Faulkner's looking at the South and we've talked about how he's painting the picture of the South persona, so to speak. And I think that he's trying to put forward the, the the best foot forward of what it means to be a Southerner, even this far after the idea of Southern hospitality and the, the South is kind of gone because it's being integrated into more of a whole of our country in this one little piece that's maybe still trying to hold on to the old ways of life. It can't anymore. And they represent this. Reba and, and Mink represent this where Clarence represents the old way of life. And that's just not going to be able to stick around anymore. So there's no reason to draw more light on the misgivings of the South. We're going to move forward with the, the, the youth of the South. And I think that's a really good way to look at it, like at a broad level. If we zoom in even more, um, when, when we look at these characters and this new way of life, 
We're talking about how you pull yourself up by the bootstraps. We're talking about this new American capitalism. And I call it new American capitalism because capitalism is a very broad term. And obviously it can mean different things in different countries. Obviously like Japan, much more cliche, uh, cliche or not cliche, clicky with how and when they choose to do business with whom. But in America, it's very uh, whatever gives you the best profit, the most gain, broad stroke comment, right? But particularly in the early 1900s, how do we view Flem in this in this picture? Because he's the one that does it without morality. Whatever is the best, he will sell out his own family members, as opposed to some of those Southerners like Armistead, like Miss Reba. Um, Mink, even to an extent, like that, that do have, well, I guess maybe let's take Mink out of that picture. Pretend I didn't say Mink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't but, know but these, if Mink works, but, but. But these other characters have some compassion. They have some feelings for it. Do, do you think, do you think there's something to be said there about how maybe Faulkner was leery of where America was going with its greed, with its unfettered approach to get ahead even? Maybe that's why he put Flem in the background of almost all the stories. I mean, he is a main character, but he's the guy behind everything. And that's, quote, corporate America. He's without maybe morals or he has scrupulous morals. He is all about a buck. Uh, he is about moving things forward regardless of who it hurts. He doesn't really care about people, I don't feel like. Um, or he does only when it suits him best. And that's kind of what we think about when we look at the negative aspect of corporate America. You think of a corporation or a CEO, whatever one you want to, you know, pops in your head. I think that's kind of what Faulkner was going here with Flem, you know, 70, 80 years ago. Well, I wonder, you said something there about the background. And, and we have motivations sometimes that are driving us. And let's be honest, sometimes we do things just to look good. And we see more than ever that Flem is doing some things just for appearance or just for for trying to, to almost like come off a different way. If, if if we look at it from like a car perspective, if you remember, remember like the Prius when it first came out, sold like hotcakes, right? Like everybody yeah. wanted the Prius because it looked futuristic, right? Like it was the hybrid. It, it made you appear as if you're doing really good and such. <laughs> and then Camry started to do it. And all they did was take the, the old Camry and just slap the little hybrid symbol on it. And at the time it didn't sell, right? Because it didn't have the appearance of, of what it was coming off to be. When, when Flem's coming at the story, you know, some critics have called out that maybe Flem was just done. He, he knew that he had done wrong, and he's just putting on this appearance of trying to appear like a, a, a more decent guy or like he was trying to help Mink, even though deep down inside, he was just trying to get his own way. He was just trying to survive in a sense. And even this ridiculous idea of dressing him up, uh, what did they call him, Mother Hubbard in a sunbonnet, like later on in the story? like That, that like, was pretty funny. It was it was meant to look ridiculous, but it's all about dressing up your motives in a sense. Flem is the middle-aged man that finally gets Facebook and had always wanted recognition for all the times he volunteered or gave money or helped at a homeless shelter. And he's the one taking selfies of, look at all the good deeds that I've done. And he's the one that's posting everything out there to see how glamorous and great and wonderful his life is. But when he goes home, 
He's sitting by himself with a drink, stewing and fretting, and so miserable. He is the everything's great on the outside, but everything's terrible on the inside guy. Yeah. I mean, he got the mansion. He got the wealth. He got the bank yep. job at the end of the town. Then what? Right. His his wife committed suicide. His daughter hates him. Like, to your point, like, he did all of this to gain that public success only to have private failure. I mean, that brings back your point, though, actually, of when I think about it, we're, I know we're kind of going in loops here, but he had all of that, the corporate success, and he's the most unhappy, miserable, and probably dies the, the you know, least successful out of everybody. Maybe you were right that this is a cautionary tale that Faulkner is giving us, that he was worried about what it meant to have that American dream. So the next section, right after this, we have the Linda section. Linda, Linda, Linda. It's it's such a strange section to me because it's like it's like almost like Eula Jr. <laughs> <laughs> like she's got yes. a different back. Yes. She's got a different backstory. Of the Hamlet. Oh. Yeah, she's got she's got a different backstory, right? In terms of this. Um, you know, this engagement and it gives an excuse to go to New York and it's kind of fun. She goes off to the war, loses her hearing and that, that, that shell blast when she's an ambulance dryer, her husband dies in war. Again, a lot of wars in all these books. I wonder why he chose all these generational war stories, but she comes back and again, just like Eula with this, this fawning or tempting of Gavin. Tempting the man, the prosecutor, if you will. And in him returning nothing but paternalistic love, in a sense, like it's not desire or passion in the truest sense. It's, it's almost like this desire to protect someone. And, and that almost like rings true with me on like the level of just like, 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 like when we think about things being passed down, like in, in how America used to work can you really pass down these things? Like does Linda feel the need to carry on her mother's legacy or, or how would you interpret Eula jr here? <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back a few things there. He hit me with a lot. Uh, so first I think with the war, I think that Faulkner is saying there's no way that something like these horrific wars could not have influenced these people in some shape or form, whether they were actually out there on the front lines or whether they were at home, you know, building bombs, bullets, and blankets. It had to influence them somehow, uh, physically, psychologically, whatever. The other thing uh, I, I think with, uh, you know, Miss Junior here is I, I think that Faulkner, he, he struggles, I think, to write women. Um, and, and we saw that, you know, with, with her mom. Uh, so I, I don't know if she is, uh, a, a carbon copy, um, cause it felt like he was doing a lot of the same thing. So he said, Hey, it worked in my first book. Why don't I just do it again? Because she does feel like she's making the exact same mistakes. Or maybe he's saying we don't learn sometimes from the mistakes of our parents and we continue to make the same mistakes. I think this is heading towards kind of like my theory of this novel. We're not there yet, but give me, give me one more second before we get there. <laughs> okay. I'm going to loop back a couple things that we just talked about. Here's a quote from Ratliff. He's speculating. He says, if I was a 18 year old gal, which would I rather have my mother publicly notarized as a suicide or publicly condemned as a whore? 
so that idea of protecting, when we've talked before about the protection of the Southern Bell, and is that really the situation? I don't know. But, but here's a word that, that we just talked about with phlegm, that, that appearance to the public versus the private failure. And you'll notice in this quote, my mother publicly notarized as a suicide or publicly condemned as a whore. Notice the usage of the word public twice, right? And Faulkner doesn't duplicate himself unless he's trying to make a point most of the time, right? Yeah. What does it say that these characters care more about their external definition than their than their actual internal representation? Oh yeah. Yeah, that that's 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 deep. I also look at it as, you know, suicide is probably something very personal, right? It's a it's a choice that person's making because of something wrong they feel wrong with themselves some inadequacy where being labeled or condemned a whore is something public is doing to you. So one's internal and one's external, but they're, they're framing it here. Faulkner's framing it here as both of these are something that the public will look down upon. They're, they're reacting to each other, right? Yeah. And there's, there's, this is my theory of this novel. There's this one quote, it's minor, but it's what resonated with me. So you're stuck with me explaining it. (laughs) All right. Hit me. (laughs) It says, this is when they're, when Gavin's talking about fighting the Germans and such, and we're talking about ideas. He says, they are all still glorious, still splendid. It's the word mystical. That's wrong. The music and the ideas both come out of obscurity, darkness, not out of shadow, out of obscurity, obfuscation, darkness. Man must have light. He must live in the fierce, full, constant glare of light, where all shadow will be defined and sharp and unique and personal, the shadow of his own singular rectitude or baseness. All human evils have to come out of obscurity and darkness, where there is nothing to dog man constantly with the shape of his own deformity. So to me, the, the way that we're, you know, when they talk about being drawn towards the light and, and these things coming out of the shadows, it's the way characters define themselves against others. They're, 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 they're the same way that Faulkner couldn't write the Snopes until he defined how they reacted and impacted the other members of Yaknapatafa County, of Jefferson City. He needed to see how when we impact each other, how that changes society, how that changes how we feel, and how important it is to how we treat each other. It's an entire justification of the amoral problem that Flem brings to the table is be, not because of the, the, the gains and material pluses that he gets. It's the physical, emotional harm he causes upon others, the emotional turmoil of reacting to others and chasing the light with without the fear of how much it can hurt other people. Do you think that because Faulkner took so long to write this, that as to your point, that these characters are affecting him? I think someone in fact, uh, someone impacted Faulkner in his personal life. <laughs> okay. Um, 
we've talked before about the leak diaries. Those are when I think it was the Stones house when he'd go over there, he'd read them and it would talk about how people mistreated slaves. And people talk about how this book is allegedly less political, allegedly less race conscious. It's got its moments. You can't escape that with a Faulkner piece. But it's how angry he got at that when he saw how people were mistreated. Not that he escaped it fully, even himself. Like like humanity, there's an element of wanting to cause harm. There's an element of wanting to to create value too. That I think it infuriated him. And he writes that into these characters, how characters have this desire to be loved, but also to destroy at the same time. You know, you have, you know, when you even look at like the presidents of this bank, like it's, we've talked about this multi-general relation of, of Eula Eula Jr. Is that the only example of that? No, right? You had, <laughs> you had, uh, um, Sartoris was the original bank president, made a black man drive him to the bank every day. Then Comps, uh, Despain did the exact same thing, made a black man drive him. And then Flem does the exact same thing. It's the way that these people see what other people do and either react or don't react and, and continue to pass down these things, whether it be Eula to Linda or these bank owners to other bank owners, uh, whether it be also the hotel owners, how the hotel... Um, started with an H was it the Hudson's I forget their name Holston's the the way that they pass down their traditions to how they run this hotel well when Snopes comes along Snopesism even and takes away tradition it takes away the human element that's when that hotel is destroyed almost do you think that Snopes is really taking away human tradition or he's just redefining it as Faulkner is looking around America today and the south and seeing everything redefined as technology is coming in and changing jobs and capitalism is changing and the technology has changed, you know, how people are communicating. And, and, you know, we've talked about him introducing cars and how that just revolutionized transportation. Do you think that's maybe a little bit more of it? I think, you know, particularly in some of his other books, like when we did the reverse, remember how he had that, that idea of, of, modernity killing nature almost being like opposed to it how it encroaches and pushes things back and how when you do return to nature there's like a good element to it faulkner clearly fell into that uh trope if you will yeah okay you talked you talked even also about uh communication there there's something to be said about how he chose for linda to not be able to communicate on some levels right she can't hear anymore so she can't she can't hear but she can read, she can talk, but she can't hear back. And it's this, it's this interesting relationship between her and Gavin as a result that their communication has changed even, where he can write to her and she can talk to him, but that's that's the circle that the two go about communicating. So um, I, think, I think Faulkner has a very complicated view of humanity. Uh, we, 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 we do talk a lot about the broader strokes of things, but it's also, there's, there's a, a, a very microscopic view we need to take of, of these things too. I think. I never really thought about the, that one with Linda. I thought it more of, she can't hear. And maybe now is the time that finally Flem wants to step up and be a dad, you know, cause he doesn't know if it's his daughter or not. So he's kind of been absent her whole life. And now that he wants to maybe kind of be present she can't hear him. Uh, that's I, I thought that was that, but I like that. I mean, I think it can go either relationship or maybe both relationships. I think um, 
you started talk, we started talking about a little about the political thing there. There's clearly a political angle with Linda too, the way that she's pushing for uh, black education, um, <clears throat> the way that she's a communist. That, that's very topical at the time too, I guess. In a sense, oh yeah. Uh, it, it's hard for me not to see that she is believing in something and pushing her views out into the world. And it's the way when we talk about these lights and the shadows, society reacts to her. They shun her. They're trying to shut down her ideas. They're shutting down her discourse. They're shutting down her way of communicating with the world. And her way of communicating with the world obviously is very different without without the ability to hear anymore. That it's changed, you know, from the first 20 years of her life to how she has to communicate. So when she does try to push for better, what she thinks is better, uh, you have the world pushing back at Hunter. And I, I can't help but imagine that has to destroy her too just on an emotional level well isn't that kind of the way that i mean faulkner would have seen our history as we always seem to take two steps forward one step back after the civil war things were going really well and we seem to be pushing forward progressively and then we fall back in the late 1800s and then in the early 1900s we start moving forward really fast and women get the right to vote and we you know we have the roaring 20s and things are going really good and then like through the 30s we take huge steps back and then you know in the 40s we have the war and it just, it happens over and again 60s we take huge steps forward 70s back 80 big steps forward 90s back big steps in the early 2000s and now we're taking steps back this is a cycle that our country has gone through for hundreds of years and I think that that Faulkner just does a good job of nailing it in this one character and, and epitomizing it of how women seem to be affected by this over and over and over again to almost like not a com like a, a, a sad comical level you know what's interesting is you bring up these generational problems right and so often we think of problems of the person or problems of the heart but there are problems that just like are bigger, like they, they, they exist, like like slavery and racism is a bigger problem than one person's decision. It's this movement of problems. And kind of like, you know, if you take a really out there example of just like original sin with the idea that you didn't cause like like that, that sin wasn't yours it was humanity sin, but it's passed down. Right. Like all yeah. of a sudden you're born with this sin that you didn't even do per se. You inherited here's all these problems that can exist in our society, the racism, the the problems with, with how we care for one another and, and such that are passed down to us that aren't even our, our call are caused by us, but become but there our are problems. problems. <laughs> right. Well, because remember there's that character that, that what was it? Um, it was like Tud Nightingale or something like that, where he was like ready to like go to fists because he wanted to defend that the earth was flat and that his father or no, that uh, General Lee wasn't a coward. <laughs> and his father died because of like inflexibility or something like that. It was the idea that he couldn't change. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that kind of comes back to like our main character, our anti-hero, I guess we're going to call him is, is Flem of he's the one that can't seem to change even though he's making the most changes in the town in the hamlet with the mansion and it just this guy it cracks me up and i i guess i wanted more or less of him or less or more of him i i don't know i don't know yeah <laughs> you'd think this last section like the phlegm section would be all about him but it's kind of a, a very mink story still too where um have, have you ever read don quixote Oh, like in high school. 
30 years ago. <laughs> yeah, like, like Faulkner was a huge fan of Don Quixote, restoring chivalry. And we almost have two characters that I question, could these be the Don Quixotes of the story? Because Mink goes on this very, like, crazy adventure with, with J.C. Goody Hay. Again, J.C., Jesus Christ, there's that original sin and, and you know, religious references. But he's picking cotton, he's buying a gun, he's traveling, like, he's all over the place on these adventures to restore fairness. Because, because... Flem didn't save him, so that's not fair. And that's his his journey is to say that code of fairness, as opposed to Gavin, who is protecting Eula and then thusly protecting Linda. And he goes on all these adventures, getting a sidekick and even like with Ratliff, that they'll, they'll do whatever it takes to protect the chivalristic code of how women need to be protected, that there's almost kind of like these little mini Don Quixote stories where characters will die on their hills to restore the honor and code by which they live. When it comes to Mink and Gavin, I kind of thought of Mink as he he's the redemption story where he starts low and you kind of root, you, you want to root for him to like turn things around. Cause you don't necessarily hate him. I mean, he's not a good person necessarily, but he's redeemable, right? He's redeemable. And Gavin is starts off. I feel like the goody little two shoe and he's the, the, the knight in shining armor, but he never lives up to those expectations. And I, I feel like that kind of parallels Don Quixote a little bit. Do you think when we get to this end here, where finally, you know, for whatever reason, the the bodyguard leaves. Just so happens to leave that night. We Plot get our entry. Yeah, we, <laughs> Come we, we on, get Faulkner. our entry. He could have done better here. We got our entry with finally getting. Do we call this catharsis? Do we call this justice? What do we call Mink finally killing Flem? for not saving him without without even being able to articulate why he should or ought to have saved him or how he could have even saved him, I should say. After all these years, do we feel relief now that we've finally seen Mink be a 3D character and you feel like he needs to be righted and Flem stays in the background with this amoralistic code? Do we feel good at Flem being murdered? I didn't. Uh, I mean, I'm not for one for murder. Uh, I'm a lover, not a fighter. But I feel like, what is it like the after so long, the crime just they they won't charge you for it anymore. Uh, I I feel like it's been long enough. Uh, and I felt like if if there, I feel like there's a lack of communication here, and then maybe that's what Faulkner was was trying to point out. If Mink had just talked to Flem and seen how miserable he was, Mink Wiley would have been happy. Be like, you know what? You got your upcomings, old man. I'm actually happy you're miserable and your life is terrible because letting him live in his misery probably would have been the best punishment for Flem. And showing that Mink is living a better life and took the high road. Um, but I think because Faulkner knew people, Mink was never going to make that choice. Uh, that was just that that was not in him, and that that's not in a lot of us to forgive. Uh, that just that's part of the original sin in human nature is we are very, very slow to forgive as people sometimes. I think Ratliff said it best because he speculated that that Flem was ready. Flem thought he was ready to die and that he deserved it. And that's why he didn't resist Mink as much as he could, 
even though you had this like really tense final scene, like you said, I think this book could have just been Mink and I probably would have enjoyed it better if it was just Mink. And yes, it, agreed. It, just, it, it culminates <laughs> in this final scene and it just, it feels very tense because it's almost like that modern horror where when we cut to the Ratliff and Gavin scenes, we don't know where Mink is. He's out there. Evil is coming, right? Danger is coming. Mm. But mm. I also sympathize with that danger. I want that danger to happen because it resolves this problem or does it? Because at the funeral, what do we see? We see more Snopes just pop right up. You take out one <laughs> Snopes, boop, 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 another out of the woodwork they come. Place. It just it's yep. hilarious. Well, isn't that the way of kind of life? I think that Faulkner was trying to say that no matter how much you try to eradicate something, something else is going to replace it. Uh, you know, whether this be the technology, the communication, capitalism, corporate greed, racism, bigotry, sexism, whatever it is, something else is going to come in and replace it. And you're going to have to fight against that. So our fight is never done. <laughs> Just like him trying to fix these stories is never done. <laughs> right, right. Well, and, and then another thing that kind of plagued this story for me is is just the the short story interjections like putting the by the people which is the Clarence Snopes section the hog pawn or something like that like it, which is the the res Snopes with metal fill like these are short stories that are injected that I just don't know uh, they felt like side quests to me they didn't they didn't fully bring in what I what I wanted in a in a Snopes finale though I guess I tolerated it in Hamlet because they were entertaining and, and there was value in them here. It was, it just became more and more difficult to bring those into the story and not feel like I'm, I'm getting a major cutaway in the middle of an action scene, I guess, in a sense, like I needed to just stick with mink. I needed to stick with phlegm. I needed to stick with those themes and they, they just took me too far away and even having like a little, like, hey, I wrote that story called The Sound and the Fury. And by the way, I kind of wanted to add a few things at the end. Like, that, it just felt like thrown into me a little bit there. Yeah, I, I was kind of confused about all of these offshoots as well, because I know that to, to use your terminology, when we have a side quest, I want it to not necessarily impact the overall larger story, but it needs to have some meaning. Uh, for one of the characters. So if, you know, in, in our analogy here of, you know, side quests in video games or whatever, uh, the side quest gives you something to propel the story forward, or it gives your main character some motivation. And it didn't seem to do that. Um, and, and this is where my my major gripe with the story, besides I wanted more Mink, and because and, I, I liked how his character was growing, um, and I felt like the phlegm part was tacked on, but my main issue was... Yeah, these side quests, it felt like Faulkner really was struggling with this book and was just padding his his words, uh, you know, his word count. And uh, that was a little bit frustrating, especially after coming off the lull that I felt was the town. I thought, all right, I, I'm, I'm going to get my Empire Strikes Back here in the third book, finally. And I just didn't get that. And I think the overall trilogy is fantastic, uh, but I think that is only because of the really strong start with the Hamlet uh, and the peaks and valleys that I had throughout reading the mansion, but it's more Faulkner. So of course I'm going to enjoy it either way. Was Faulkner right about some of these things about how, how we should be wary of unfettered greed or how we can cause harm to each other? Is, is there, is there a truth to how these people react to 
how these people fear and create danger and harm and not focusing so much on the beauty and, 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 and love that we can give to each other. Like, like is, is there a true element of truth to these stories? Oh, of course. I think if you just look around you of our corporate greed, if you look at materialistic greed, how, you know, everything is just about what I can buy, how fast I can get it. I want it now. Everything has to be instant. And I think he was trying to say, you need to slow down a little bit and appreciate those finer things in life. And the people you have in life are going to mean a lot more to you. Because we look at Flem and he didn't appreciate the people in his life. He was always trying to get over everybody. Even even his you know daughter, who may not have been his daughter, like he wanted to do the right thing, but he ended up even doing that. And I think that th- this very much is a cautionary tale uh, for for all of us, not just you know the the South or that ideal of the South, but Faulkner was trying to trying to to broaden our horizons of being better people. Well, I will say this: it was it was not my first round with this story. Uh, it was definitely a second round, and it obviously took us a lot longer. This was supposed to be a three month journey. It took us five, not because the stories were bad or anything like that. It was more just about personal things that came in. But I, I will say this: anytime I read a Faulkner, it, I still try to take these lessons from it and apply. Like, what do I need to do differently? Because that's what I think literature is supposed to do. It's supposed to make us ask those questions. Besides just being expiring or, or escapism, it should be asking us questions about: Am I living my life the best way that I should? And if there's one lesson I can take away, I think you nailed it on the head there about, you know, I do need to do a better job of just caring about the people and recognizing that my search for light should never create a shadow on someone else's uh, experience to, to kind to kind of quote like, you know, like that, that my thesis for this book when, when I read that one quote, uh, there's just something about how we're so interconnected that we just always need to be mindful of that. And I think that's probably the most important part for me when I read these stories is, is characters that drove into themselves ended up being the most lonely. One last thing, cause I, I love how you worded that, but it got me thinking about this idea that caring for the people that are in your lives, because sometimes we want everybody in the external. We kind of talked about that in our discussion here is we always worry about all what everybody thinks instead of just those few people that are closest mm. to us. And what happens when we don't look at those few people that are closest to us? All the Snopes just keep popping up, all the Mm. randoms, so it doesn't even matter. Care about those, take care of those that are closest to you, and don't worry about the rest. See, Faulkner even knew it back then. This this is a lesson that people really need to to, to get on board with, I feel like, nowadays, especially with modern social media. If that... If that realization didn't earn a like and subscribe from from you out there right now, I don't know what was. But that was beautiful. That was beautiful. Playlist uh, down below of other Snopes talks of ours. Obviously, playlist 40 plus long of other Faulkner videos and talks that we've had. What book would you love to see us cover next? And thank you again for the patience for any of you that have stuck around this long, as well as our friends that read this as the Faulkner in August with Brian and Roz and, and Greg and Alan and, and all of our friends out there. It's It's been a journey, and I apologize that it's taken us so long to catch up. We couldn't join in at the same time. Um, but, you know, I think that's part of the reality of just being a human being and seeing each other and uh, being patient with everybody. So appreciate everybody out there. My name's Manuna. Peace. Be kind to each other.